Hey everybody, John Mark Comer here. Welcome to the teaching portion of Bridgetown Church Online. I invite you to put away your phone and turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Week one of the shutdown, my friends were all passing around an article by Scott Baranato for the Harvard Business Review entitled, That Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. The title alone put language to what I was feeling in my body, that odd kind of mix of feeling down and off-center and irritable and scared and low energy at the same time. Oh yeah, like that feeling, that discomfort is grief. But we Americans don't really know how to deal with grief. We prefer to avoid it by our coping mechanism of choice, digital distraction or hustle or obsessive working out and dieting or that all-American favorite, what the philosopher Byung-Chul Han called the violence of positivity. And he's not the only prescient thinker to warn us about the shadow side of positivity. I've been following the work of Dr. Kate Bowler for a while now. She's a historian of religion at Duke University and uh, really wrote the seminal work on the history of the prosperity gospel in America and was very much a critic of it, but then was diagnosed with terminal cancer at the age of 35 with a newborn child. Her whole life was up in the air in disarray and she began to realize just how deep that prosperity kind of health and wealth mindset was in her own spirit. And so she has this great memoir she's written called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Have Loved. And it's a great read. And because of it, she was interviewed by the New York Times last week. In the interview, she said the following, the idea that we're all supposed to be positive all the time has become an American obsession. It gives us momentum and purpose to feel like the best is yet to come. But the problem is when it becomes a kind of poison in which it expects that people who are suffering, which is pretty much everyone right now, are somehow always supposed to find the silver lining or not speak realistically about the circumstances. The main problem is that it adds shame to suffering by just requiring everyone to be prescriptively joyful. If I see one more millionaire on Instagram yell that she is choosing joy while selling journals in which stay-at-home moms are supposed to write joy mantras, I am going to lose my mind. Touche. But there is another way to face grief, not with positivity, but in the language of the New Testament or in the vocabulary of the New Testament with hope. And there's a line in Paul's letter to the church in first century Thessaly that does a great job of capturing the symbiotic relationship between grief and hope for a follower of Jesus. Let's read our text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 down to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. 
Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And that is exactly my aim for today, to encourage you with the passage that we just read as kind of a follow-up to Easter. To start off, let's take a few minutes and work through our text and then circle back to Paul's line about grief and hope. To start off, verse 13, again, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed. And the implication is the followers of Jesus in Thessaly are uninformed. About those who sleep in death. Sleep in death is a metaphor used all through the New Testament for the time period between death and resurrection. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, or that can be translated the rest of the pagans, not a derogatory term, people who are not followers of Jesus, who, and listen to the clear difference between the two, have no hope. Interesting. What is our hope as followers of Jesus? 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe, listen to the implication, that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. This is most likely an early creed from the first century of the church. It's a way of saying that what happened to Jesus one day will happen to all of his followers, death followed by burial, followed by resurrection. 15. According to the Lord's word, meaning according to the teachings of Jesus, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Meaning, the followers of Jesus who are still alive at Jesus' return will have no advantage over those who died a year before or a century before or a millennia before. 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Notice the direction. Not we will go to heaven, but he will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, all imagery from the Old Testament and Jesus' teaching. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, this language is very easy to misread if you take it literally rather than literarily, and the best clue to interpretation, as always, is context. Take a look just at the next line, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates when all of this will go down, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well, there's no answer, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace, safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul likens the return of Jesus to three things, meeting the Lord in the air, a thief in the night, and the unexpected birth of a child. Now, clearly we are in the realm of metaphor at this point. He's not saying Jesus will come back as a baby again or come back as a criminal any more than he's saying we will literally fly up into the clouds. All three are metaphors. In fact, whenever the writers of the Bible talk about the future, they almost always talk in the language of metaphor. N.T. Wright once said, all talk about the future is like signposts pointing into the fog, right? It's poetry not a theological essay. Let's just interpret Paul's first metaphor for today of the clouds. Clouds were stock Jewish verbiage for a theophany or an appearing of God on earth. 
And the word appearing there is parousia in Greek, and it was used in the ancient world for an appearing of the emperor or Caesar. Whenever he would make a public appearance, it was called a parousia or an appearing. And the word meet is apatesis in Greek, and it was a technical term for when a delegation from a city would go out to meet Caesar or a very special guest and escort them back into the city. In fact, it was Caesar, if it was Caesar himself, the entire city would go out to apatesis to meet him and escort him back into Thessaly or Corinth or Athens or Jerusalem. Paul is saying that Jesus is the reality of which Caesar is the parody, and one day Jesus will return. He will come back. He will arrive and appear on earth, not just to rule over a city, but to rule over the whole world. And we, as his people, will go out to meet him in the clouds and give him that special place of honor, and then we will escort Jesus back into his world where he will take his place of honor as the king King of kings and the Lord of lords in the language of the New Testament. And we are to, 18, encourage one another with these words. Paul's point is not to freak people out with the threat of a rapture, but to comfort followers of Jesus who are in emotional pain. Now, on that note, let's focus in on Paul's key line right there in verse 13, which is the motivation or the reason why behind Paul's teaching. Quote, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul is saying two things, that as followers of Jesus, one, we are to grieve, but two, we are to grieve with hope. A word on each. First off, we are to grieve. The word in Greek is lupeo, and lupeo is the feeling in our body when life has hurt us and our soul is attempting to self-heal. Or better said, it's the feelings, plural. Grief is more than one feeling. The definitive popular work on the subject is The Five Stages of Grief by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Her five stages of grief are one, denial, two, anger, three, bargaining, four, depression, and five, acceptance. All five of which are on display right now with COVID-19. Denial, it's just the flu, or it will all go away, or it's not a thing, it can't hurt me, I'm under whatever age. Anger at President Trump, or at the Democratic Party, or at the media, or at whoever. Bargaining, well, if I just stay inside and follow all of the rules, then it will all go away in a short period of time. Depression, there's no hope for the future, it's all over, my life as I know it is over, let's just sleep in and watch Netflix. And then acceptance, okay, here is reality. I'm all right, what now? Now, the most helpful insight from Ross's work is that grief is more than just sadness. It is a whole range of emotions. For me, it manifests most of the time as irritability. I just get really touchy and on edge with my family and my spouse in particular. But the book's idea of five stages is as misleading as it is helpful. One, because grief is not linear, and she later regretted saying it that way. They are not stages that you get through in a linear progression. Like, we think grief looks like this. Okay, stage one, denial. All right, now let's move on to stage two, anger. Okay, now stage three, I'm in the bargaining stage. It's not like that at all. In reality, it looks more like this. 
It's a mess, it's a cobweb, you're back, you're forth, it's irrational, it doesn't make sense, it comes like a wave out of nowhere, just a little trigger to set you off. And two, it's misleading because grief doesn't always resolve in a neat and tidy way. All right, okay, now I'm done with grieving. This is where the power of biography and literary fiction come in. They teach us to make peace with our grief and the open-endedness of life. But again, we Americans aren't great at grieving. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, writes about the five major worldviews and how they each deal with suffering. And he makes the case that the Western secular worldview is the least equipped to deal with suffering because it has no meaning at all to give it. Viktor Frankl's famous work here, Man's Search for Meaning, is the definitive work in recent history on this. If you're familiar with his masterpiece of a book, it's built around Frankl's experience as a Jewish psychologist in a Nazi concentration camp and his simple but profound observation that the people who made it through Auschwitz were not the biggest or the strongest or the smartest or the best educated or the most charismatic or even the most positive. It was the people who found meaning in their suffering. They were the ones who could endure. But in the secular worldview, there is no meaning to life other than whatever you make up. It's all just evolutionary chance. So the default purpose of life for most people, not all, is just survival and pleasure. Stay alive as long as you can, help other people stay along, alive as long as they can, and be happy along the way. But in this worldview, suffering is at best an interruption to the purpose of life, if not a permanent obstruction due to loss or disease or death. So it's hard for us as Americans to face our grief, especially those of us who grew up in the middle class. We're used to feeling in control, used to planning out our future, used to a sense of linear progress year over decade over a life. Grief is what happens when you're not in control and all of your plans go belly up and you don't feel like you're moving forward at all. If anything, you feel like you're moving backward and there's disequilibrium. And grieving isn't something we do as much as it is something that we let be done to us, let wash over us, that we surrender to. And while it may be a steep learning curve for us as Americans, as followers of Jesus, we come from a rich, long tradition where grief isn't just a feeling or even a process, it is a practice or a spiritual discipline that in the Hebrew wisdom literature is called lament. Lament is a kind, it's a form of prayer, and it's a kind of protest over evil to God, and a kind of processing all of our emotional pain over evil with God in trust, but also in honesty. Lament is how we pray when our prayers are unanswered and God is silent. And Jesus put lament on display multiple times, weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus, sweating drops of blood in agony over his own death, praying Psalm 22 on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's not surprising that something like two-thirds of the Psalms, or what scholars call the prayer book of Jesus, are lament. The Psalms are full of denial and anger and bargaining and depression and acceptance, the full emotional gamut. 
They are a liturgical map for us to navigate the cartography of emotional pain with God's Spirit as our guide. All that to say, we need right now to follow Jesus' example of lament, and we need to grieve. But, and here's what I'm getting to, we also need, number two, to grieve with hope. The word used by Paul for hope is elpis in Greek. The basic meaning is kind of a sense of expectation. Last week, we defined fear as the anticipation of future suffering. Hope is the opposite of fear. It's the expectation of future good. It's that buoyant feeling of uplift in your spirit and even an energy in your nervous system and body that you get when something good you think is on the horizon. But that's just a definition of hope in general, not the hope of a follower of Jesus. All humans, religious or not, are painfully hope-based creatures. Unlike the animals, survival is not enough for us. We need hope that things will get better over time. Suicide is what happens when people lose hope. It comes as no surprise that the suicide rate in our city, and it's devastating, and far beyond Portland, is way up over the last six weeks. That's because hope must have an object. We must have hope in, we must put our hope in somebody or something, be that God, or our boss at work, or our career, or our startup making it, or our kid getting into the right college, or meeting the right spouse by 25, or a quick end to the virus, or whatever your hope is for. And the things that we put our hope in often let us down, hence the kind of cynical cliche, don't get your hopes up. But as followers of Jesus, the object of our hope is God himself. It's not just a generic optimism for the future. It's on God. In biblical theology, hope is the absolute expectation of coming good based on the person and promises of God. That's my working definition of hope. The absolute expectation of coming good based on the person and promises of God. Hope is not positivity or denial or wishful thinking. It is very honest about the grief of something like COVID-19 or unemployment or a lost dream or a business, and it knows how to grieve. It knows its way around pain, but it's confident that God is at work through it all to bring about good. In the language of church history, hope is one of the three theological virtues along with faith and love. They are called the theological virtues, one, because they are theological, they have to do with God. They don't make sense. Faith, hope, and love don't make sense without God. And two, because they are virtues, not just feelings that come over you and then go away, but virtues that we nurture and feed and grow and exercise as a part of our apprenticeship to Jesus. Over time, we grow and mature and we become the kind of people who are like Jesus, who live with a deep confidence in coming good based on God himself. But it is very important that we clarify what our hope is in. It's not really enough, I don't think, just to say in God, because it's really easy, at least for me, to import my own wishful thinking or magical thinking into that blank space in our mind. The best way to sharpen our vision of hope is with Scripture. Listen to a few of the New Testament writings on hope. 
Here's a few excerpts from Paul's letter to the Romans. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Or later he writes in chapter eight, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Or here's Peter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or listen to John, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him, in Jesus, purify themselves just as he is pure. Now, that is just a sampling. The New Testament is saturated in hope. You can't really pick up the New Testament and read a single page without coming across its hope for coming good. In fact, I, a word study on hope in the New Testament is well worth your time. I promise you will come away just with your soul rich. But when you synthesize what the New Testament writers have to say about hope, you realize very fast that our hope is not that nothing bad will happen to us or that things will just get better over time. In fact, Jesus made the exact opposite promise. He said, quote, in this world, you will have trouble, will have trouble, not may have trouble, not, I don't know, there's a chance that the you know, percentage is or the probability is. No, you will. Jesus made it clear that we should expect suffering as followers of Jesus and just as human beings. We should expect, in his own language, wars and rumors of wars. We should expect things like COVID-19. Trouble is the rule in a world where the Satan is still on the loose and sin is still in our body. A trouble-free life is the exception to the rule. So if our hope isn't that nothing bad will happen to us, well then, what is it? Well, it's threefold. First and foremost, it is in the return of Jesus to make all things new. That one day, Jesus will return to, in the language of Revelation, wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more sorrow or crying or pain. There will be no more COVID-19 or disease or even death, no more unemployment, no more partisan infighting or fear-mongering or uncertainty, none of that. And it's that God has started the healing of the world with Jesus' own resurrection. As theologian N.T. Wright put it in a Zoom webinar for Pacific Northwest pastors the week before Easter, this is officially my first time quoting from a Zoom webinar. We know we're in 2020, COVID-19. The Easter event is that promise being brought into the present in Jesus' body. 
the first fruits. What God is going to do for the whole creation in the end, he did close up and personal for Jesus three days after his crucifixion. That is both the beginning of the new creation and the energy with which the new creation is implemented. It's not that we don't have hope for the here and now, we very much do. It's that in the balance of hope for this age versus hope for the age to come, our hope is freighted at least a bit to the age to come, to what theologians call the new creation. Secondly, in the meantime, our hope is in Jesus' presence with us now in our trouble. Yes, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But the next line was, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And his last words, Matthew 28, the very end of his life were, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our hope is that Jesus is with us as a church by the Spirit, that his death and resurrection have somehow opened up a portal for us to enter into and experience the inner life of the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace that we call Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and to experience that in the here and now and together as a community. I think of John Wesley's final words on his deathbed, if the rumor is true. He said, best of all, God is with us. Do you believe that? But the best thing in life is not making money or great food or eating out or your plan. The best thing in life is Jesus' presence with us no matter what comes. If you don't feel that way, no guilt, no shame. Don't beat yourself up or turn this off or whatever. Just get into the presence of God and discover for yourself what it is that you have been missing. Finally, number three, our hope is that God will utilize all of our troubles to form us into people of Jesus' presence in the world. We all hate to admit it, but we grow and develop the muscle of virtue by a kind of resistance training. I've grown more in the last four or five weeks than I have in years through something that I never would have chosen. And if I could flip a switch and make all of the COVID stuff go away and the economy come right back and we gather together next Sunday and bear hug each other and all go out to eat afterward, I would do it in a heartbeat. But I know that God is at work right now in my soul. I, will, I know that I will come out of this, whether that's in a few weeks or a few months or much longer, with a profound level of healing and freedom in my inner man. Our pain and suffering now is a kind of training for our joy later in this life and above all in the next. That, brothers and sisters, is the hope of a follower of Jesus, not that nothing bad will happen to us, but that no matter what happens to us, one day Jesus will make all of the sad things come untrue that in the meantime, he's with us now in our pain and that he is doing a deep work through all of our pain and suffering. All of it has a role to play, doing a deep work to make us into men and women of love. And we must cultivate the theological virtue of hope because we can't follow Jesus without it. Eugene Peterson in a lecture on hope said that we live between the comings of Jesus, his first and his second, and hope is what connects the present with the past and the future. 
He said this, hope is a response to the future which has its foundations in the promises of God. Great definition. Then he writes this, hope is not about the future. Hope is about the present. It obviously has to do with the future, but it's a virtue which is cultivated in the present. It fills the present with energy. It connects the two comings of Jesus so that we are now participate in them. We're not just remembering the one and believing in the other. We are participating in the continuity of the comings. Hope is more than a little shot of fuel in our emotional gas tank. It is the road or the way that we travel. But for many of us, the autobiography that we're living in is not based on the plot line of hope. Instead of hoping in God's future, we are planning for our own future. In a secular society, planning has taken over the role of hoping. Or as Peterson put it, eschatology has been replaced by strategy. Now, I'm not down on planning or strategy at all. Both have a place. But there is a world of difference between planning and hoping. Planning is an attempt to control our future based on prediction and to shape our future to match our desires. Hoping is the act of surrender to God's future based on a deep, calm confidence in his love and wisdom and involvement in the world. It's to aim our desire over the horizon of this world to the next. But it's very hard to hope in a culture of planning. As a result, many of us live with a chronic sense of disappointment whenever our plans do not work out. But disappointment is a friend, not an enemy. Disappointment is an emotional signal from our body that our hope was misplaced, that our hope was directed onto the wrong someone or something. And there are two ways to deal with disappointment. Option A is to take the next step to disillusionment, where we give in to our feelings that say, you know, due to our circumstances, God doesn't love me or care about my situation. But disillusionment as well is a gift because it's a sign that we were living in illusionment, in an illusion, not in reality. Maybe that illusion was bad things don't happen to good people, or if I follow Jesus, he will give me a comfortable Western life, or if I adopt the right biblical technique for my children, all of them will turn out great, or if I save myself for marriage, I will discover a wonderful spouse by age, whatever, or if I tithe, my business will make it through, all of which are not bad per se, but our magical thinking are not grounded in reality. When we feel that nagging sense of disillusionment creep in, rather than say, why did God and his promises fail me? Say, what was the illusion that I was living in? And how do I come back to meet God in reality? You see option B or the other way to deal with disappointment is Paul's framework in Thessalonians, to grieve, but to grieve with hope. Now, how do we do that? Well, again, there is no technique, but if you want a practice for the week ahead and the season that we're all in right now, here's one I did over the last few days that was very healing for my own soul. It's from one of my favorite spiritual writers, Ronald Rollheiser, in his book, The Holy Longing, and it's based in Eastertide in the church calendar. 
He calls it the Paschal Cycle. Paschal is Catholic language for having to do with the Passover around Easter time. He writes about the five stages of Eastertide in the church calendar. One, Good Friday, where we get in touch with our grief. Two, Easter, where we get in touch with our hope. Three, the 40 days after Easter, where the disciples were invited to kind of realign to a new reality of Jesus. Four, the ascension, where Jesus left the disciples for heaven. And then five, Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit in Jesus' place. And he takes that as a five-stage emotional process for grieving and hoping. One, he writes, name your deaths. Two, claim your births. Three, grieve what you have lost and adjust to the new reality. Four, do not cling to the old. Let it ascend and give you its blessing, just like Jesus. And five, accept the Spirit of the life that you are in fact living. An easy way to go through this process is to journal. I'm not a diehard journal guy, but there's so much evidence now from science even to back up what the spiritual masters have long said, that just the act of writing out your emotional pain before God is healing. There's even science to indicate that you actually have to write it out, not type it. It's like you have to get it out of your body and onto the page. I sat down a few days ago and wrote out the five stages, you know, name your deaths, claim your births, with space beneath each one, and then just went back and in my journal started to fill in each section. Name your deaths, all right, here's everything I'm grieving right now that I've lost, that I miss, that may or may not come back. Claim your births, here's what God is stirring in my spirit, new stuff, moving from anxiety to possibility. Three, grieve what you have lost and adjust to the new reality. How do I adjust and make peace with our new normal? Four, don't cling to the old. Let it ascend, give you your blessing. What do I need to let go of? And it's now in the past and let it bless me to move forward. And then five, accept the spirit of the life that you are in fact living. Make peace with and even begin to celebrate my new life with God. To end, last week in his Easter sermon, Pope Francis spoke about the contagion of hope. And it's a little bit of a subversive metaphor right now, but I like that idea of a contagion, that when we hope, we spread that hope in the atmosphere around us. You know that feeling when you walk into a room or nowadays into a Zoom chat room, and there's somebody there who has developed the theological virtue of hope. They just ooze it kind of out of their pores. They just breathe out hope for the future, and they set the atmosphere of the room. And as you're just around that person or on that phone call, you start to breathe in that hope and let it flood your body with a new kind of energy, not only for tomorrow, but for today. In a cultural moment of disappointment and disillusionment and even despair, we, the people of Jesus, ache to function as agents of hope in our city and our nation and far beyond. So as we close, I invite you, if you want, just to right there where you're at in your living room or on your couch, just close your eyes, take a deep breath in and out. Receive the hope of the Holy Spirit. And let me just pray Paul's blessing over you from Romans. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him 
so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. As you know, we are nearing completion on our building renovation project right here in the inner east side of Portland. And we hope to move in as soon as possible, um, depending on what happens with this whole coronavirus shutdown. But without having Sundays um, gatherings, we're a little bit vulnerable financially. So for those of you who are part of Bridgetown, thank you for your continued giving. And if you're not part of Bridgetown, would you consider giving above and beyond what you already do to your local church? We would love any kind of partnership towards completing this building project. You can find out more for that or give online at our website, bridgetown.church/giving.